Welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we've got a special guest in the podcast studio here in Seymour, Connecticut, Bill DeFord. Bill, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Bill, uh, I know we we got you here. So thanks. You came a pretty far distance, not, not terribly long, but I know you had some friends that you stopped along the way to see and uh, we made this work and we had a little surprise here for you. Um, and I do want to thank publicly uh, the Beacon Hose company and Seymour for coming out and uh, surprising you here. Uh, Bill, your background is you are, and I'll let you say it, but why don't you give the audience just your professional background here? Sure. Uh, I was a licensed social worker in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts back in the 1980s. I'd been a volunteer fireman and was looking for a plan B because human services tends to take the biggest and hardest cuts when the economy dips. Because I'd been a volunteer firefighter, I thought I'd like to be a firefighter. So I took one and only one test at a department I really wanted to belong to, which was Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And thinking that I would make the list and have, you know, like a two-year window with which to make a pretty big decision if they offered me the employment. And sure enough, within two weeks, they called me up and offered me the job. And that began my uh, fire service career on the career side of it as a paid professional instead of a non-paid professional volunteer. And I did that all the way up through my illness until they, they wouldn't allow me to come back, you know, for all, all of the right reasons with great care, kindness, and compassion. So I did 25 years as a career firefighter. I rose to the level of captain shift commander in Longmeadow, Mass. And um, so that's the career side of the fire service. And in addition to that, because I happen to live right over the line in Connecticut, I've been an instructor with the Connecticut Fire Academy now for 17, almost 18 years. Uh, mostly in the recruit firefighter program, which is rookie school. It's like basic training in the military. And, you know, that's been, uh, both have been an incredible adventure in my life. And I still continue at the Connecticut Fire Academy, despite the retirement from Longmeadow Mass. And and that brings me to today with uh, tremendous, tremendous blessings in all regard as a, as a fire service professional. So being, we can say, lifetime in the in the fire career in the fire business, um, what was it like to? Uh, and we had some friends here this morning that you know, right. um, you know, to see the trucks here, and and so how did right. how did that make you feel? Well, I got to tell you, and mo- most people I think can't appreciate this, but you're forged with other people in the fire service again, whether they're volunteer, which I say is a non-paid professional because I'll hold those folks up to even some career people I've worked with, but the family aspect of it, we say firehouse because it is like a house. It's not a station, it's a house. And so part of the reason I always refer to it as the, the great blessings of my life, my fire service career, there's nothing more moving than that. You know, the folks that you had here, to greet me upon my arrival. It's just moving in ways you can't describe to people. You know, most people will know fire firefighters say brother and sister, yeah. but they don't really know where that comes from or how and why. And I think it's because we're forged by the experience differently. So you had, you know, Chief Trasky here this morning, and he's somebody that if he lived in California and I pulled into a station with my wife and family and I said, I'm on the job in Massachusetts, 
he has this sense that I've been down a dark hallway or that I've been to bad car accidents or I've seen people in the last moments of their lives. That bonds you like family. So, you know, Jimmy's as, as close to me as I am with my brothers, yeah. you know, and in some ways closer because of the magnitude of, you know, what we've seen individually in our own places. But but it's humbling. There's no better way to say it that, you know, I wish everybody's occupation could be like that. Yeah. I know your work is tremendously meaningful, and I hope that, you know, people find that in their lives. But the fire service is just unique, you know. Well, um, you know, we'll get into how we met in a minute here, but, you know, this was something that uh, with having you make the trek down and everything that you're going through, uh, we just thought it would be something really cool um, to have for you as a welcome, you know, to this part of the state. And, you know, the the Seymour Fire and and Jim with Beacon Hose, you know, being able to come down here, I think was pretty special. So thanks to those departments for making Mm -hmm. that happen and uh, appreciate the support. So. I will add that it doesn't surprise me that you arranged that that way. <laughs> Secretly. That's how, well, that's how I've come to know you, and that's just phenomenal. But again, uh, those you know, those are the things that happen for which I think you know we ought to have a deep and great appreciation for it. And I'm glad we took the photos out. Yeah, front yeah, we got some good. Those photos. are memories you can't repeat. That's right. That's We've right. got some beautiful apparatus that are yeah. well cared for. So yeah, absolutely, the residents absolutely. in those communities should know that their their taxpayer dollars are you know. Um, Going to good use. Going to good use and that they're taking care of their equipment, and which is their reputation anyways, yeah. whether their communities know it or not. But that's yeah. good stuff. And I, I think something that you just said about the, the whole fire business, um, about community. And I've had many of my close friends that I grew up with that are, are on the job in various departments across the state. And it truly is like a brotherhood. Right. You know, and I think there's something to be said. And we were having the conversation outside when you got here about you know, organizations similar to have that community because right. that's what it is. It's a, it's a community within a community. Right. You know, and you have, you know, rank and file, you have people. And then, you know, I've seen it and we've seen it countless times between law enforcement and fire when there are tragedies, right. you know, on the workforce, how departments from all over the country support, you know, a fallen brother right. or sister, you know, that has lost their life on the job. And, you know, before he arrived, um, I was talking to one of the guys from Seymour and we were talking about fires and, and situations and we were talking about 9-11, you know, and how a lot of people from this part of the country, you know, Connecticut and Massachusetts, when 9-11 happened, a lot of guys that were on the job, volunteer or paid, went down to New York to do the bucket brigades. And right. now, you know, all these poor folks have had a lot of health issues. And, That's right. Um, you know, just from inhaling what was in the air and they didn't care. They went down to try to save people, right? right? So it's just really, uh, really powerful, you know. And I don't think, you know, there are some industries that are like that, you know, in some ways. Right. Different, you know, though. They don't have that connection. Um, so it is pretty impressive and very powerful to see that. So yeah. we saw that firsthand this morning. So One of the things I'll tell you, Dino, is that, uh, first of all, I'm humbled to be here and that you've asked me to be here. And I would say that as much as I've tried to be a selfless person for my entire adult life, selfishly, I have hesitated to share with people because I don't want to give the impression that I have anything to teach anybody necessarily. So, But you're a teacher at the fire school. That's right. But I think out of... Out of a deep sense of humility, I don't like to tell people what to do. And in terms of the cancer adventure and all the rest, it sort of fits that category where, 
you know, you're awfully careful about what you do. I, I've always felt like it's more important to be a model of what may be helpful to people. But I'm going to tell you on this and coming here this morning, the parallel to the fire service is that if I had waited, I've been with my wife and girlfriend, the same per person for 33 years, married for 29. And if I wasn't making the emotional, spiritual and other investments in my relationship with my my lovely wife, Lisa, for the past 33 years, at the time of my diagnosis, it would have been sort of late to start creating that. So as you and I remark about the fire service, the one thing I think it's important for people to know is uh, it was important for me to do that at home before I you know, became a firefighter. And if you want to look at it in purely practical terms, when my family needed to endure what they've endured for the last two years, uh, you can't make up that time. So when I say brotherhood and sisterhood at the fire service, I have relationships like that with you, with other people um, outside of my family, but it always started with my family. So when you say you're mirroring, we say brotherhood. Well, I had four brothers until my, my brother just passed, you know, last week. I should have had at least as, as substantial relationship with my brothers as I did with the guys in the firehouse. Forged from a different place with yeah. different kinds of intensity. But I think that's really important for people to know with these kinds of adventures or terminal illnesses and things like that, that you're, you're making investments your whole life, whether you believe it or not. And they're emotional, spiritual, economic, economical, whatever they happen to be. But it was very, very helpful to me that I didn't wait to make these investments until August 26, 2016. And so th that's, so I'm, I'm glad that I have the fire service end of that, but I'm even more uh, humble and blessed that that's how my family life has been. You know, our son is 28, our daughter's 26, and I have no scars from my marriage or my family. And, uh, at a time like this over the last two years, when you tend to magnify, you know, those those areas of friction, I haven't had it. And, and I've been very fortunate because of that. I think my wife would say the same thing as trying as this has been as difficult as it has been, especially for her as the caregiver. If we didn't have the friendship that we have, you know, it's easy to see why relationships are fractured and and more problematic for all for all very legitimate reasons. But Again, I had, you know, at that point, 31 years of friendship and 27 years of marriage that were, um, you know, the, the, the foundation that was required, you know, to get me to this point. So you've been preparing your whole life. That's right. If you think Not about knowingly, it, right? That's Not knowingly, right. though, but like how you live your life, your life hasn't changed. That's right. You know, in terms, I mean, yeah, you have adversity in your life now much more than you had three That's years right. ago, but the dynamic hasn't changed and how you are hasn't changed and who you are hasn't changed. That's right. And up to and including things that you and I've talked about, interests or passions that we share, whether it's the fundraising through running and all the yeah. rest. I didn't wait until August of 2016 to start eating right, yeah. uh, getting into shape. You know, somebody could say how you, you know, yeah. at, at that point I was 55 years old. Why you? You've done everything right. And I always point out to people somewhat, Sadly, but Dana Farber's filled with children who never did a thing wrong yeah. and never had the chance like I did. I've had a great and rich life. But again, I, 
I couldn't have waited until that point to start to now make those those changes. So same thing. I made investments along the way, not ever anticipating that I'd have this diagnosis. I actually was hopeful that I never would because of what my done. preparation and what I've done. But as every oncologist in the 10 or 11 hospitals that I've been to at this point has said, you have no idea you've stacked the deck in your favor. And even now when the news is ominous, you know, settle your affairs and all the rest, I always tell them, slow down. Yeah. Let's just take one minute, one hour, one day, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do with it, you know. And so that's been helpful. But, yeah, I, I am essentially the same person with greater adversity than I've faced, but better prepared for it because of the you work know, you've put in. Yeah, the healthy habits of living that I had. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to take a step back a bit. Let's talk about the date, August 16, 2016, and we can fast forward to where we are today in terms of treatment. But right. so for our listeners at home, what what happened? I mean, you were living life, you were right. on the job, yeah, you were active. I know we've talked about this from the hiking and the running and just right. having that active lifestyle and being at the Connecticut Fire School, you're an instructor, but you teach PT, which That's is right. health, physical, wellness, tra- fitness. physical health, yeah. wellness, and fitness. So you're, right. and you're a healthy guy. Right. So what happened? Like what was going on? Yeah, that again, and this is to my great benefit, but I think people who do that sort of thing and have those habits of living, healthy mm-hmm. habits of living, tend to know themselves better physically, mentally, spiritually emotionally. And so for me, I, for a period of a couple of days, I didn't feel right. Sort of had like an acid reflux. And typically what, you know, your primary care physician would say, uh, you know, you're copper fireman, yeah. you know, you got acid reflux. I'm going to, you know, prescribe like Prilosec or whatever. And my wife and I that summer had taken down four barns, four buildings. We, oh, wow. we do some timber framing type work. She's a school teacher, puts in a lot of hours during September to June and Typically in the summer, she'll work on her lesson plans and curriculum, but less intense than the school year. So we had taken down these buildings at the end of the summer. I had a couple of shifts where I wasn't feeling quite right, but nothing that, you know, derailed me. And she and I took off to Maine for my four days of uh, regular time off Mm -hmm. on my 24-hour shift schedule. And while in Maine, uh, I, I didn't feel well. I had a couple of nightmares, which is really unusual for me. And then on our way home, I said, let's call the primary care physician and see if he can fit me in. So and when we, you say, hold on for a second, when you say you don't feel well, do right? you got gas or gas? Actually more like the acid reflux. Acid reflux. And, I, and I didn't feel like I wanted to eat. Mm. And it was sort of an esophageal stomach sort of area of malaise, yeah. you know, kind of thing. But I knew, but again, I eat anything, I exercise, I eat, yeah. you know, Every two to three hours, small and frequent, healthy meals. Yeah. So I knew, you know, you my knew your system. Body, yeah. yeah. So on the way back, we called the primary care physician. My wife said, "Well, that's unusual. You go for your annual physical, but you rarely go to the doctor otherwise because you're not sick." Mm-hmm. And I said, "You know, she knew that I wasn't feeling well." That morning, coincidentally, she's just very astute. We're very close. I flushed the toilet twice because my urine had changed color. And I wanted to actually see it. When I came out of the bathroom up at this cottage in Maine, she said, you just flushed the toilet twice. Why was that? To make sure. And she knew that I hadn't been feeling well. And I said, well, my urine is darker. And and so primary care physician never called back, uh, you know, while we were en route back. And I told her to pull into the local regional hospital up by us in North Central Connecticut. Yeah. And went in and a young ER doc, great doc, 
you know, interviewed me and came to the same conclusion. I think maybe a hiatal hernia, you know, you've got the acid reflux, yeah. I prescribed, you know, a Prilosec. And I don't know what, you know, compelled me to say it to him, but I said, listen, there's something really wrong. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think I had cancer. And at which point he cocked his head a little bit and he said, really? And I said, there's some, I just know my body and there's yeah. something really wrong. And he said, well, let's get some blood work. And then over the course of three and a half or four hours, they sent me for, they brought a machine to the bedside. So they did ultrasound, CAT scan, the blood work. And at every point they kept advancing, you the know, diagnostics. the assessment and the diagnostics. And literally three and a half hours later, he came in and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have pancreatic cancer. And at which point the typical wise guy fireman in me said, well, at least I don't have a hiatal hernia. And I reached over and I rubbed his arms and I said, it's okay. It's just information. And then from there, you know, your life just changes as anybody who knows or has had a family member or has acted as a caregiver knows. I mean, that's a whole, that's, you know, game changer is, you know, diminishing the power of words, but that's how it started. And so literally that night, my boss, the fire chief had called me about some other things we had been working on. And I said, oh, by the way, I've, I've just called out sick to the fire department. And he said, he did the very complimentary stuff. Well, that's unusual. Is everything okay? And I said, it's not. And I told him that yeah. story more briefly. And, uh, and so I worked my last shift in the firehouse, not knowing that I did because I never went back after that. I went back, you know, yes. to this day, I still go back and break bread with the guys. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going next Friday night for dinner, but I never went back, you know, to work as a firefighter. And, and then from there it was the Whipple, which is, you know, the, major surgery. It's been around a long time. And then I was a candidate for conventional treatment. I didn't know, want to know the staging. I thought everything other than telling me what information I have to decide upon and deliberate about was going to be the priority. Don't distract me with what ifs. Yeah. What ifs or hypotheticals. And uh, so the task at that's hand, the way we moved. Yeah. Figure out what we need to do now. That's right. The next step when we get there, then we'll figure that out. That's right. And as you know, uh, you know, the science is incredible, and, and, and it's driven by some entities that are profit-driven. So that's sort of, you know, frightening for some people. They don't always think that the intentions are the best when, when Absolutely. you know, money's involved. But I very quickly had an opportunity to, to evaluate conventional uh, treatment versus alternative or a combination of the two. And the science was just so powerful that I elected to do the Whipple surgery, which I think, again— So you had been, the Whipple— I had the Whipple up at Mass General Mass Hospital. General. Uh, the surgeon there does 120 yeah, of them a year. Phenomenal program, yeah. Yeah, he does two-thirds of what they do out of Mass General and locally. And here's what I heard from some great doctors in Springfield and Hartford, Springfield, Mass, Hartford, Connecticut, was that, you know, they can take care of 99% of what you need, including a Whipple. Mm-hmm. But the surgeon in Hartford said, I only do 12 a year. You're not going to go wrong by being at Mass General Hospital. And so uh, that's the route I took. And, and, and believe it or not, the standard bearer at the time for alternatives was like a guy like Steve Jobs, who I just, I mourn over his loss for what he did for the world. But, you know, he had all the resources in the world and chose, you know, by all appearances, I don't know the specifics, yeah. but, you know, an alternative route right to his demise. And, and people to this day believe that. If he had surgery, if, if he, he had, had the surgery, whipple, if he had conventional, yeah, or it would have bought him more time. Yeah, or, him more time, yeah. Uh, so for me, it was a pretty easy decision. Mm-hmm. And 
And again, what people don't realize is there's no guarantees for any of it. At the mortality rate nationally, I think for the Whipple is like 3%, which mm -hmm. you think, oh, that's low. But that means three people out of every hundred are, yeah. are going to die in the surgery or th right thereafter. Yeah. Mass Generals was 1%, which told me that I was, you know, going to the right place. I'm fortunate I'm a New England boy and I yeah. have Boston, New York and Hartford, Springfield, you know, within arm's reach. We have access to quality that's care, right. you know, and that's, that's something right. just to talk about that point there is like, we talk to patients a lot and some of them don't have the means to get to a high volume center. And right. that's really what mass general and you, and that's I love right. how you said it. And if there's anything in my story that I look back and I always look back at my dad's care and it was funny that, cause the number was exactly the same. My dad's surgeon when my dad had the Whipple wow. did 12 a year and wow. at the time bill, and this is like kind of naive and the guy was a great surgeon. He was a generalist. Right. I was like, oh, that's a lot. And right. then you meet surgeons now. Right. You know, and I talk to surgeons from all over the country, and, you know, some of them do, you know, 120 a year. You know, right. they're banging them out. You know, that's all they do. That's they right. do three or four a week, you know. Yeah. Or some guys do two in a day. Um, you know, so these high volume centers, you find expertise. Right. And you also see the rates of incidences after that that's go right. down because they're either really good at what they're doing right or they're doing some other things that these other centers a regional center may not have the expertise to do that's because right they're not doing as many as they are so that's one right. thing i i you know we really advocate to pay to patients go to a high volume center you know and right there are ways of getting there you know there's programs available within the hospitals we have an aid program we've helped you know, with referrals and, you know, getting access to those high volume centers, but we really do advocate. So, you know, for those listening at home, right. You know, get to a high volume center. Well, Dino, you know, here's difference. where you, you, you're so humble. And when you and I have these conversations, you, I will tell you personally in my life, your interest in to honor your dad or however you came about this whole thing your advocacy is intangible. So it sounds pretty easy to say we recommend that on this program today, I'm going to recommend that people go to high volume centers. Uh, that's another thing that people don't realize. We're not savvy in the medical field. I was a fireman. I was a social worker, you know, reasonably sophisticated enough person. But even then, you still have to be an advocate for yourself. So tap into places like this and, and organizations and people have an interest in trying to give you that broad view of things because I've been around some world famous people, some real rock stars in the field of oncology. And there have been times where they have said something to me and I've said, well, what about, and they've said, wow, that's great thinking. And, and I have said, Bluntly, I don't want the freaking fireman in the room to be the one with the thinking. I'm paying you big bucks <laughs> to do the thinking. And, and you're the rock star. Yeah. But same thing that, you know, you're going to know when you've met the right person when, and, you know, the surgeon that I met with in Hartford as a second opinion said to me, I do 12 a year. Uh, Dr. Fernandez at Mass General Hospital does 120. You're not going to go wrong. Do I think I could do well by you because you're a healthy guy? Yeah. You know, and all the rest, of course I do. And, and do I think my margins will be like his? Of course I do. But I wish you the best. I'm going to stay in touch with you, even though you're not a patient of mine. That's when you've met the right person. Yeah. Conversely, I was in Springfield at one point and they were trying to reach my surgeon <laughs> because I had an event before my surgery and yeah. they wanted to go in and take my gallbladder out. And I said, well, 
I think yeah, we've got to hold on that yeah, because, do it. yeah, this is part of the Whipple, which I have in a few weeks. Well, she came back to my bedside somewhat discouraged that I've tried to reach him for the last hour. And I said, what you don't understand is he's if he's doing 120 yeah, a year, he's probably in surgery. He might be in one right now. Yeah. And the surgery for the Whipple nowadays, I think Mass General Hospital is like a 10-hour deal. Yeah. Because they're slicing to get the clean margins, yeah. which means it's going down to pathology. Pathology to make sure, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking he he might be like yeah, scrubbed he's up. He's probably busy right now. Yeah. yeah, you're probably not gonna get him. But I said, trust me, he's gonna say the same thing. I'm scheduled for two weeks from yeah, now. Leave him alone. Whatever we need to do to get this to settle down. Because yeah. if I go in and have my gallbladder out in Springfield, then that's gonna delay the Whipple yeah. and you know, whatever. And sure enough, he called in back and he said the same thing I said, which is ship him here. Yeah. And they did. And they shipped me there and they settled it down. I was on antibiotics in the hospital for, you know, a number of days. Did you have a gallbladder attack? Yeah. So what happened was uh, the bile duct, the gallbladder clogged. bile duct. Yeah. And it was related to that, which typically, again, if that's an acute issue, that's what they would do. They'd go in and oh, remove your gallbladder. gallbladder yeah. yeah. Which is a basic procedure. And it's <clears> ironic that... I've found a lot of people have their gallbladder removed. It's a pretty right. common surgery. I guess that's something that they do for right. not just pancreatic cancer, but for just <clears throat> digestive issues. Right. It's a very common thing. Which I would think I, what I found is- I had mine first, removed last year. Yeah. And they were like, oh, your gallbladder, it's easy. Laparoscopic right. surgery that we do like 10 a day. Like it's not a big deal. It's like, almost like when I was a kid, your appendix oh, or appendix. your tonsils, yeah. same thing. It was that cropped up. It's like, yep, yeah. oh, yeah, you're good. Yeah. Take it out. Yep. Yeah. You'll I be okay without it. Yeah. I still kind of wonder, but I don't know. They were like, you know, right. avoid fried foods, which I don't eat a lot of fried foods to begin right. with. But, you know, every now and then, you know, yeah. we were just in Wisconsin, we had some cheese curds. You, you know, have to. <laughs> you, have to. <laughs> you have to. You have to. It's like fairs in New England. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to oh, eat yeah. your way through the midway yeah. <laughs> on purpose. Yeah. Eat those fried Orioles. Yeah. So you have the Whipple. MGH. And then subsequently after that, then you started treatment. Immediately, Immediately after, after I started chemo. So the conventional route for, and, and it's probably important for me to clarify this because I use a lot of synonymous terms, but I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that turned out to be a little more exotic than that. It's yep. cholangiocarcinoma, yep. but it was on my pancreas and my yep. bile duct. Yep. So to this day, they still say pancreatic it's cancer. part of that family. That's right. Like neuroendocrine, which is what Steve Jobs and That's Rita right. Franklin, again, similar, right? but still part of the pancreas. I like the way you said that, Dino. It's in the yeah. family it's of- It's in the family of the and pancreatic so cancer. The conventional treatment was the Whipple followed by chemo, followed by radiation. A little unconventional would be if they're going to try to bomb you with chemo because yeah. you're not a candidate for surgery first. Yeah. See if they could calm it down a little bit to use completely unscientific terms. But I was a candidate for the Whipple chemo radiation, and I started immediately. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, again, I did research. I did the consult at Mass General around the chemotherapy. They were great folks there. They explained to me the regimen, uh, the milligrams per kiloliters, whatever it yeah. was. And I said, is there any way that I could have this locally? Even though chemo was only once a week or once yeah. every other week, it turned out to be my to my real benefit to have asked that because I did my chemo in Enfield, which was out of St. Francis, out of Hartford, yeah. but it wasn't once a week. There's blood work, there's meetings yeah. with the oncologist. You have to go back to sometimes you get the new the shot, the booster shot. That's right, booster, because of my right. platelets. Yeah, your platelets. So in the end, uh, what Mass General had said was, if you're going to do something locally, you need an oncologist who understands pancreatic cancer and the regimen we're going to put you under. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, uh, the oncologist who, when I was in the ER, 
they were consulting the psychologist in Hartford. So every test they were sending me for in the ER, they were sending it to him. That's why he came back with such confidence that I'm sorry to tell you have pancreatic cancer. That oncologist became my oncologist. And I went to talk with him and I said, I've had the consult at Mass General Hospital. They said they strongly discouraged me from doing something locally versus driving to Boston. But if I'm going to these, these should be my considerations. And this doctor, uh, Dr. Thumar out of St. Francis in Yale, basically sounded exactly like my consult. And he said, I have patients right now with pancreatic cancer. And he mentioned the gemcitabine and the cisplatin. And he gave me the, and he started to talk about the quantities per body weight and all the rest. And I, I said, can you do me a favor and call the uh, chemo-oncologist up at Mass General? And if you all feel good about it, then that's what I'm going to do. And the feedback that I got from Mass General is it's going to be identical to the care that you would get here and will be a supportive arm for him Mm -hmm. if in the unlikely event he needs it. So I literally, uh, I think four weeks after my surgery, I started the chemo and and it was local. And because it's in Enfield right across the river from where I live, literally, Dino, a mile and a half from my house, uh, one street away. And I drove the mile and a half and, and that's how I started and then I ended up doing the radiation. So I did chemo for six or so months, and uh, which was standard. And then radiation I had to do in Springfield only because the radiation center mm-hmm. where I was getting the chemo was being remodeled. But again, that was not inconvenient. It was 15 minutes from my house. And although the radiation was a month and it was every day, uh, literally it took me longer to drive there than the actual radiation, radiation treatment. treatment. Got back in the car and drove home. And so... The first almost a year was chemo radiation. Yep, surgery, chemo radiation. How yeah. did you tolerate the chemotherapy? Because we talk to a lot of patients, and some right. do very well, <clears throat> some do okay, and some don't right. do great. What I found, and and it was my experience as well, is nobody can really tell you because it's unique to you. I'm like you, other than eating through the midway at a New England fair. I have eaten healthy my whole life. Uh, my build doesn't leave a whole lot of room for, you know, side effects like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. So uh, although my wife will tell you every day I said, I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. And, but what I did, and I think again, if there's any benefit to having this great conversation with you to anybody out there listening, it's that the other thing I found was that for four decades in my life, I had built this mental matrix around positivity and be positive, productive, and constructive. So what I did is I've heard a lot of people use words for a long time, but they're just words until you put them into action. And so one of the things that I found to be extremely beneficial was when they would tell me, for instance, with the chemo, uh, yeah, here's what it's going to feel like. You're going to suffer, you know, uh, whatever that speech was to me, I would always say, how about we wait to see how I feel and then I'll decide what to do about it. So I didn't presuppose like the night of chemo or the day later that I was going to suffer. I I had it in my mind and then I acted on it, which I think is a real valuable point here. I said, why don't we wait to see how I feel and then I'll work, what I'll do about it. So there were some nights of my chemo. There was one night I can remember where I loaded 35 sheets of plywood at the local, you know, uh, lumber store. And then there were other weeks where I got out of chemo and I was I was pretty gassed. So what I did was I took it one minute, one hour, one day at a time. And even through the medications, they want to give you the meds 
you know, the first month I was on one of them, there are painkillers that people probably get addicted to, but that causes a side effect that's gastrointestinally related. Yeah. And so what I said to my doctor was, I'm going to wean myself from that. And he said, you can't. And I said, well, I already have. And here's what's happened is that I don't feel any worse. So it never takes you for anybody out there listening. They know this. If they've, if they're a caregiver or they're on the adventure themselves, that it doesn't take you from sucks to perfect anyways. <laughs> yeah. It's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So what I did was they had me on every four hours, six a day, and I weaned myself to two a day, which didn't make it any better, but it also didn't make it any worse. worse. But what it did do was it helped to resolve the puzzle of the side effects, which were the constipation or the nausea, vomiting, yeah. diarrhea. And so uh, that's important for people to know that I... I didn't just have these sayings in my mind. I acted on them up to and including challenging some very bright people with, you know, what I know for me. And I just did that recently with a PA. She said, well, why aren't you taking the anti-nausea meds? And I said, I had to develop a threshold for myself. And so I'm not a martyr. I don't want to endure great discomfort. But what I've realized is this is my threshold. If I go over that threshold, I'll take one. And she said, well, you ought to take one every day. And I said, but what you don't realize is I would have taken medicine every single day for the last two years if I didn't develop my own threshold. By the time I got done talking with her, she said, wow, that's great thinking. At which point I resurrected in my mind. I don't want the freaking fireman to be the one with good thinking here. But, <laughs> but those are the things that happened that it, it, was, it was very difficult for that first year with the surgery is no joke. Yeah. Uh, and then the chemo is no joke. And I found that over time now I've done another whole regimen of chemo this year my body likes chemo even less every time you know and so you know this year i've been on a chemo that's less aggressive but sometimes cancers respond to that yeah because it's metastasized in my liver and my lung i've you know we've tried a couple of different things but uh, my body likes this version even less and it's supposed to be less intense than the other version i had Mm -hmm. but you know your body just doesn't like it it's a toxin it's a poison uh, designed to kill cancer, but everything else it attacks fast dividing cells, which are your intestinal tract and you know hair follicles for people with some kinds of chemo. But yeah, it's no joke. But again, my I think the positive self talk helped me. There were days when, as you and I have talked privately, that I look in the mirror in the morning. I I lost, <clears throat> I think all told, some forty five pounds in the beginning. I'd look at myself in the mirror. I'd have to hold myself up on the bathroom vanity. And I would just smile in the mirror and say, you got it. You got this today. You got it. And that's that's how I would start. But, you know, that was helpful again for me. So I have a question. Do you think that the medical community doesn't ask the right answers with regards to the, the pills? Like you just said, and I, and I had this thought in my mind. And, and going back to what we were talking about before, this is a business. Like right. medicine is a business. <clears throat> Big business. Big business. Right. Trillions. Not even billions. We're talking That's trillions. Right. And not to bring up a conspiracy, but I, I don't know. You know, there's been a lot of talk about a test, a blood test. Right. Is the world ready for a blood test, first of right. all? You know, um, I hope it is. Right. Selfishly, that we do find a test. Um, I think we have to get really good at managing the disease first before we can cure the disease in some right. aspects. But so to back to your question about the medication and you being the smartest person in the room, do you think that partly they don't ask the questions? And and I'm going to, I've always said that 
you as the patient have to be the biggest advocate in the room. No one else That's can right. advocate for you. And if you don't ask, you don't get, right? That's right. Or is it that the system is created where like, hey, pills are 50 pills in a packet. It's $100. The insurance pays right. 90%. There's a $10 copay. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on I that? think it's the latter, but I think here's what drives it. Economics, it's driven the world for, for centuries oh, and economics drive it. And so I think if you look, uh, first of all, my experience, and again, it's 10, 11 hospitals at this point, a lot yeah. of really smart people, they're scientists with tremendous IQ, not necessarily tremendous EQ. So their emotional quotient might not be as high as their IQ. IQ, yeah. And they're driven by science. They're scientists. And yeah. scientists operate from a standpoint of validity, reliability, provability. Mm-hmm. So everybody I have been around, even when I've uttered those words that the fireman should be the smartest one in the room, I've never not had the sense that they're they're digging as deep as is possible and as empathetically as possible to fix me, to cure me. Mm-hmm. But they're going on what they know. So there have been times when I've said some things to doctors and they've said, wow, most people wouldn't ask that. So if you think about the the pain meds, for instance, mm-hmm. it's probably unique if a guy, you know, like Dean O'Reilly or Bill DeFord says, I'm going to do less of that. That's not what they're accustomed to hearing. hearing yeah. They're hearing people say, I need more of more, that. I need yeah. more of that, right? And so I think they're driven by the, the science and their background in science and by what they see most of the time, which is you know, some high percentage, 90% of the people are looking for a note to stay out of work where I was digging deep to try to go back to the firehouse. Those are unusual things. So I think the combination of those, but I will tell you, they also appreciated when somebody like me said, well, what about? And I, I think that's important. So I think I'm like you, I'm hopeful that society is ready for a blood test. I think they ought to be but did the economy of things. I think my chemo at a couple points, Dino, was $20,000 a month. You know, you're not going to do that with medical marijuana. You're not no. going to do that with alternative treatments. No. There's nobody putting money into other than places like Project Purple, you know, and foundations. There's nobody putting money into. And I've, not unlike you, I've heard it from from dozens of people. There's this thing down in Mexico. Listen, if there was an herb root in Bangladesh, I'd fly <laughs> there. But yeah. The problem is there's so many scams. There's so yeah. much uh, risk. There's so little uh, science yeah. uh, with validity and reliability that, you know, you're you're funneled into the decision making that I've made, and I'm and I'm and I'm really happy about it for my family. Yeah. Has it come with some real suffering on all parts? Mine, my wife's, my kids, my friends, of course, but. Two years later, I'm still here. And they were saying, you know, pack your bags two years ago. Uh, I am a product of that science. As as bad as it could seem for some people and as suspicious as we might want to be about some conspiracy that they will have a cure for it. At the same time, I'm still a beneficiary of it. but, But I think that's large societal you know, a large societal problem anyways, not only with the healthcare industry, but oh, with everything. criminal justice, yeah. with a lot of things. Yeah, we could look at everything. Yeah, we could look at everything and it comes down to economy. And, yeah. But again, a New England kid who lives near Boston and New York and has the resources that I've had, uh, I'm nothing but blessed. But So I think it's the latter. And I'll tell you, but doctors have been responsive to it. I had a Yale, a world-renowned expert who they 
brought in, recruited from Michigan, who ran mm-hmm. an 85 person oncology team, really special person. Uh, her, her, she was a caregiver for somebody in her family. She really believed strongly in clinical trials and that those are the real heroes mm-hmm. because there's, there's just such a low probability of success, but you are a stepping stone to getting to those, getting successes, those successes, right? Yeah. And at one point in a meeting with me and my wife, my wife said, how bad is this? I know the original diagnosis and this was last fall. And she said, really bad and essentially implied settle your affairs, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, my wife was shattered and, you know, it was an awful end to the meeting. And we left. And as we were driving back from New Haven, my wife and I talked about it. And I said, well, I think she made some mistakes there. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I think they do that because people will get false hope. But I think there's a way that she could have delivered that where she said unequivocally, I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to pretend that this isn't bad. But I will tell you that we're making advancements by the month. You know, there's some really exciting things coming. Again, I can't make you any promises for Bill. And then the second thing she could have said was, and I'll also tell you this, there's always got to be a first. We're going to work very hard to make Bill the first. So my wife and I talk about that. And I said, one minute, one hour, one day. That's all we got. I'm not going to think too far in the future. And I said, next time I talk with that world famous doctor, I'll mention that to her. Sure enough, you know, a couple days later, she calls me at night, which is not the doctor. Uh, yeah, which is not atypical for these folks. That's how much they care. We had a great conversation about the clinical trial that I begged off of because it was a phase one with a low probability of success and a lot of really nasty side effects. And at the end of the conversation, I said, I need to just have you do one thing for me. And she says, what's that? Eager to help. And I said, the next time you're talking with my lovely wife, and I shared with her what I just shared with you, you need to tell her unequivocally that I don't want to give you false hope, but at the same time, I want to give you some hope. And to tell my wife that there's always got to be a first and we're working hard for Bill to be the first. There was a pause. I thought I'd gotten disconnected. And then she spoke again and she said, I will, Bill, and thank you for that. I said, all right, Doc, nice talking with you. Have a good night. And we hung up and I thought that's probably my best example in my experience of the IQ, the EQ. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt this woman is phenomenal that she cares deeply about what she does uh, beyond the passion for it, you know, she had a family member. I get all that, but she's so locked into, I'm going to do whatever can, whatever I can to cure you. Even if it's Thursday, you're getting chemo and you're going to die on Friday. Friday. They're not going to give up. I think they carry it with them that I had another, you know, cancer patient die, but sometimes that comes at the exclusion of the humanity of it, you know? And so, yeah, I'm intrigued by it all. And that's, you know, been fascinating from that regard but you said something we're getting we're moving in the direction you and i hope we will i'll tell you that we're we're pushing we're working really hard towards it so for our listeners at home and you said before like you had your whole life for this mental matrix you know to think that way but the last two years have been extremely difficult. So what are some of the things that you maybe do on a daily basis or like we were talking before we started recording about the sleep? Right. Which I think was just so fascinating when you just told me that because that's right. not cancer related. That can be right. just anxiety related. So what are some of the strategies that maybe you can share with our listeners, you know, about certain situations that have happened in the last two years with that thought process, because I truly believe the mind is amazing. Like, I mean, with the marathons and as you know, right. I mean, you go to a marathon, you see a guy with 
you know, I remember going to my first Boston Marathon, and there was a guy 350 pounds that was blind who passed me, and I was like, <clears throat> "We've all had those." Yeah, I was like, "How is that experiences, you know? yeah. And I and I realized that early on, and then naturally, what we've done here in the last eight years. Right. We've had so many amazing stories and people that have never run marathons that have finished marathons, heavy, light, you know, um, you know, and, and of all shapes and sizes. Right. And then you go to these marathons and, you know, you just you the mind is an amazing organ. It's an amazing thing. The brain is an amazing organ, I should say. But the mind is just truly amazing. And I, I truly believe, and I know I've, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but it's what, like, we lose, we use, like, 2% of our brain activity, right? It's so low. And there's this huge organ, you know, that has so much power. And when you put your mind to it, not to sound corny, you can do amazing things. It's not easy, that's if, right. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it and everyone would be doing these amazing things. And a lot of people, and sometimes you have to go through like a traumatic experience sometimes, you know, to have something like that happen, like a lifestyle change or a mind shift change. But so the last two years, what are some of the things that have happened? I mean, or, you know, the things that have happened, but how have you gotten your mind? I know you had this mental matrix over the last you know, 40 plus years yeah. of your life to, to, to train you for that. But I know that can't be easy. You know? Yeah, you're, you're right. And first of all, my pinnacle moment on a run was a grandmother pushing like a granddaughter, <laughs> same thing. And, and all I could say to myself was really, oh, are you really? kidding me? Yeah. And then I spent the last part, I think it was a 10 K around Thanksgiving, a fundraiser. And yeah. I said, She's not going to be, yeah, yeah, you know, that's yeah, what you yeah. kind of generate if you're, you know, you have athletic. I did that with a grandpa. I think it was like New Haven, like the New Haven road race, the last one. This guy beat me. And then I looked and I was like, holy cow, this guy was like 68 years old and he smoked me. Smoked and I, you. Smoked yeah. me. And I'm like, how the hell does this happen, man? Right. I am like, I'm healthy. I, I, think I work out relatively. Right. I guess I don't train hard enough. You That's know? right. It's right. like, it was just such a, it was such a mentally humbling experience. Yeah. So I was like, how does this happen? Well, let me give you two things. One is that I think the important thing about the sleep and I'll, t and I'll describe that briefly to the listening audience. Uh, it, the one thing I want to say about that is that you will not read. It hasn't been a lot of the things about cancer and a caregiver or a patient or the person on the adventure, the caregiver, the family, the friends, whoever happens to be, uh, will not be able to read these things in a book. They, they haven't been written and there aren't enough books that can be written that will cover the subtleties of what these kinds of things are for people and their families. So on the sleep end of it, I had a guy who was a fire chief, uh, deputy chief nearby and, and he had cancer before I did. He died a year ago. Great guy. And he and I used to have conversations. And what we realized is and that's part of why I'm here today is that you you won't read it. You won't know it. So when people have said to me, and I've talked to a lot of people, what do you do in the middle of the night, Bill, when you wake up and you're afraid you're going to die or your family, you're afraid for your family or whatever it happens to be, you know, what do you do? And one thing that I learned a long time ago working in a firehouse for 24-hour shifts is I've always said to people, just lay there and rest because that may be more helpful to you than the night before when you had a full night of sleep, but it may have been restless and you didn't know about it. So don't worry about, I'm supposed to be sleeping at two o'clock in the morning. Take it for what it is and lay there and rest. And so what I found is it's probably better to do that. You may even fall back to sleep in and out and then you'll sleep the rest of the night or whatever it happens to be. 
but that may be better than a turbulent night's sleep that you don't remember. Uh, and I always said to people, don't get up, don't get up and start a new routine at two o'clock in the morning, because now you may be changing your circadian rhythm or your natural rest to work sort of cycle. So that would be helpful to me. But I came upon that through my own processes and trial and error, trial and error from a long time ago that really benefited me then. And what I found is that a number of people said, well, I get up, I go on the computer, which, yeah. you know, now they've you done research and said, yeah, <laughs> that kind of light isn't good yeah. for you. And so that's helpful. The other thing along the sleep end of it is that there have been nights when you and I have both gotten a full night of sleep and then two and a, two o'clock in the afternoon, we're tired and tired, we can't yeah. figure out why. Again, when I wake up in the morning with, I've had in the last, probably once a week now for the last month, there has been a night once a week where I've not gotten any sleep at all. I've laid in bed. It's been boring as heck, but I've laid there. And here's what I found is that surprisingly the next day, some of those days I'm not tired. Other days I am. So I don't imagine at two o'clock in the morning, if I cannot get back to sleep, I'm going to be so tired. I've adopted the same philosophy as I did with the chemo or the radiation or the surgery, which is let's see what comes and then I'll apply whatever strategy, strategy it is to handle that. So instead of somebody telling me, well, you're going to be tired the next day. I've just said, let's see what I've got. And then I'll, you know, I'll then apply the right strategy to handle it. And that's been helpful. So the other part of the answer is that it's all about perspective to me. And I think that's the case, again, that I've known for a very long time. I had two brothers who died in the 1960s. Uh, one is an infant back then, 1963, they called it SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, crib death. Another brother who died at 11 in 1968 of a brain tumor. And so when I was diagnosed in that emergency room with my wife next to me and the doctor with tears in his eyes, the first thought that crossed my mind was, thank God this isn't my wife or my kids. And the second thought was, if it was as much of a spiritual person as I am, I would be on the ground kicking and screaming, begging God to let me take it, as I think any husband and father would do. And this happened in like rapid succession. And then the third was, this is going to be awful for my dad because my dad already lost two brothers and then he lost my mom in 1996, essentially 20 years before, almost to the month. And I thought, what is my dad going to feel like that he lost two boys and his wife and he's 82 years old. He's going to be thinking, take me, take me. Just like I was 10 seconds earlier when I'm thinking, thank God it's me. So from that very quick, rapid succession of thoughts, I came upon the conclusion that, okay, you got it, handle it. Carry yourself with as much poise and dignity as you can, you know, uh, continue to develop these strong relationships, live with a purpose just like I had for a long, long time. And that's what did it for me. So perspective was really, really key. And then the other was live with a purpose. And for almost two years, you know, people have said to me, wow, you've got this, you know, property where you're doing work and you and your wife took down these barns. It must be a great distraction. And I've always told people, avoid that concept. I don't want a distraction. I want to continue to live. And I'm greedy. I wanted to be there for my son's wedding, which happened at the beginning of July. I want to be there for my daughter's wedding, which isn't planned yet. Uh, it could be years in the future, but just to live with a purpose. So the perspective and to live each day with a perspective. One of the benefits of my fire service career has been that I've watched people go to work in the morning and not come home at night. And that's an acute traumatic experience. But I've been given this great blessing where I still have the opportunity to live one minute, one hour, one day. As much as I 
back in the day, didn't think I worried about next week or next year. I suppose I did like most people would, but now I'm, I'm more sensitive to that. And, and so I live with a purpose every day. And, you know, my wife, who's been pretty traumatized by the whole thing, asked me a few weeks ago, why you? And my brother was diagnosed with lung cancer in April and died last Friday. I said to my wife, I said, maybe it was to guide Keith, you know, through this part. And, and I've worked really hard at, at doing that. And that was part of my purpose for those months. And so purposeful and, uh, you know, to have some perspective, even my dad, who's, you know, now been traumatized even more. I've had a, another brother who, who's died. I think he would tell you that he hasn't had it as bad as other people have had it. So, so you get it from your dad. Yeah. And I got to tell you, when my brother was diagnosed in April, I reminded him, you know, all worried about that. And I said, listen, he was the pinnacle of strength. He taught us, you know, you're a DeFord boy, you know, carry it on or whatever. And, and so my dad, who, you know, over the last week has suffered mightily, you know, had said to me, he's a big guy, six, four and a half. And, you know, he's a prison guard in a maximum security prison for a year. So big man, strong man. And he said to me, my, my shoulders are stooped. And I said, yeah, and they may be for the coming days or weeks, but you'll stand proud again. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, that, that I am and that my kids are the legacy of you. And they've taught, you know, you've taught them how to be strong and you will be again. And, but I'm sure he would tell you in a lighter moment that he didn't have it as bad as others. And, you know, and I think that's, I, I just have found that that's really helpful and healthy at the same time that, you know, when my brother was diagnosed, he didn't care for himself. He was a 40 year smoker, lived hard. Uh, but I didn't imagine, you know, just in April that my brother wasn't going to live to 80. I've been thinking about that for, he's my younger brother. I've been yeah. thinking about that for, you know, a decade or more. And so I think those are, those have turned out to be healthy things for me that I never imagined. I was hopeful because I have a, a great family, you know, that my wife and I would walk on the beach when we were 80 holding hands. And I still am working toward that and digging deep. Uh, but again, probably through my work, through my life experiences with my brothers and my mom, there was always the part of me that thought, we're well, not guaranteed that. You know, I was guaranteed that my kids were adults, healthy, college educated, or otherwise prepared for the world. And Again, I'm greedy. I don't, I'm not ready to go. But by the same token, if I went, you know, I'm glad it was me and not them. I'm glad it was when they weren't 10 and 8. I'm glad for a lot of things that have been blessings. And that's helped me, you know, in the darkest, deepest, you know, most painful or otherwise days. I've reached back to that and said, you know, that's, that's a part of my philosophy of living. And the other thing, Dino, is, I've watched a lot of people. I think you really have to live before you can die. And I can say I've done that again with great greed because I'm not ready to go yet. And I'm still digging deep, but I've watched a lot of people who haven't really lived. And then the sadness of that death would be that they haven't seen the richness of I've as I've seen it in relationships or other, you know, parts of their life. And so, you know, it's powerful stuff. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Hey, Project Purple fans. This has been such a great episode of pancreatic cancer survivor Bill DeFord that we decided to break this episode into two parts. So thank you for listening to part one and make sure you tune in next week for part two where we continue our interview with Bill DeFord, pancreatic cancer survivor.